Secrets in the Snow by J. Jefferson Fargen The Christmas Eve motor coach stopped in the middle of nowhere. Rubbing the steam from her window, Janet looked out into a whirling white wilderness. She could not see any sign of town or village, and nobody got in and nobody got out, saving the conductor, who had vanished the moment the coach had come to a halt. Is anything wrong? she asked the untalkative man next to her. For two hours this man had taken no advantage of the fact that, at a season of easy comradeship, he had been sitting beside an exceptionally pretty girl. Don't know, can't say, he answered shortly. I'm betting it's a jolly old snowdrift, exclaimed the more loquacious young man in the seat behind. He had been doing his best to cheer a woman with a toothache, and had failed signally. Any takers? The bet was not accepted, which was a misfortune for him, since his guess proved accurate. In a short while the conductor returned with a gloomy face to report that the road was blocked. There's snowdrifts as big as St. Paul's, he added. We've got to go back for help. The untalkative man jumped up. That doesn't suit me, he grunted. I was getting out at the next stop anyway. So was I, said Janet. You're not going to West Mallerton by any chance? He hesitated, then murmured, That direction, and the next moment was outside. Well, wait a minute, exclaimed Janet. "'seizing her suitcase. "'That's my direction, too.' "'To her surprise, the loquacious passenger interposed. "'I say, I wouldn't really,' he urged, thrusting out his foot. "'Why not?' she demanded, frowning at him. "'Why not? Well, just look at the weather,' he replied. "'You'd better wait here. You'd never do it.' "'Thanks, but I've got a house-party on,' she retorted. And I mean to do it. Do you mind moving your foot, or I'll lose my guide? She stepped over the impeding boot, and a couple of seconds later was out in the blinding snow, for an instant as the cold caught her, and the flakes flung themselves into her face. She wondered whether the loquacious young man's advice had not been sound. Still, sound or not, she was not going back and she plunged forward after a dim figure that was rapidly becoming obliterated. The figure moved as quickly as she, and it was not until she had increased her pace that she caught it up in a narrow lane. You are in a hurry, she cried breathlessly. The pursued one turned, and his expression, a mixture of surprise and annoyance, was not complimentary. You said you were going to West Madison, Janet explained so I thought we might walk together. I don't know the way. I said I was going in that direction, the man corrected her. But you didn't mention that you loathed company, she shot back, incensed by his rudeness. Don't worry, I'll keep behind. He regarded her fixedly for a few seconds, as though sizing her up. Then he said in a slightly changed tone, Let me advise you, young lady, to keep well behind. Otherwise you may walk into more trouble than you've just come from. Really? Really. What sort of trouble? Curiosity killed the cat. Only I don't happen to be one. He smiled rather grimly, 
and responded after a moment's consideration. Very well. I'm on a Scotland Yard job, and there may be some rough stuff coming along. He patted a side pocket suggestively. The weather chose this moment to create a diversion. A sudden wind drove a flurry of snow viciously into her eyes, and her suitcase slipped from her cold fingers. She stopped to regain it, stumbled, and took a soft fall. When she had picked herself up, she found herself alone. And policemen are supposed to be polite, she thought. Well, if I've lost my guide, I've still got his footprints. They ran down the virgin carpet of the lane till they were lost in the white kaleidoscopic mist. She began to follow them, but stopped almost at once. It's funny, she murmured. Two sets of prints. Whose are the others? Both sets of prints were very recent. Of that there was no doubt. With fresh snow falling all the while, old marks soon ceased to be, and new marks had but a short life. Moreover, before she had overtaken the Scotland Yard man, she had been following only one set. Yes, but if that was so... She gave it up and hastened down the lane. The lane turned and twisted. The footprints became less and less distinct. That meant that those ahead of her were outpacing her, and that the length of time between the reaching and the making of the marks was increasing. They must be in a hurry, she reflected as she accelerated. Presently, near a snow-covered barn, one set faded out completely. She had met nobody, and there were no signposts, so all she could do was to follow the remaining set and hope heaven would be kind to her. The joy of Christmas was fast oozing away, and she was wet and shivery. Already she regretted that she had not taken the advice of the idiotic young man. Yes, he had been idiotic. The scraps of conversation she had overheard behind her in the coach had, in Shakespearean terms, written him down an ass. Yet, as he had tried to dissuade her, and had impudently stuck out his boot, there had been something not unpleasant in his ingenuous blue eyes. Perhaps if a man were born a fool, he could not help it. She found herself walking mechanically. She had a sensation that if she stopped, she would stop for good. She was growing colder and colder. Her feet had become two lumps of squelching numbness, and tiny streams of chilly moisture were running down her neck. Then the worst happened. The last footprints faded out, and she reached a fork where the lane divided into two. Now what? she asked herself. She tossed up in her mind. Heads right, tails left. The imaginary coin came down heads, and she took the right-hand fork. Walking became increasingly difficult. The lane narrowed to a snow-clothed track. Once, avoiding a big white mound, she trod deeply and sprawled into a ditch. She rose, spluttering, rescued her suitcase, and wondered whether to turn back. But now the blessed miracle for which she had prayed occurred. A little way ahead, its roof just visible behind a high hedge, was a cottage. She staggered towards it. 
as a spent man staggers towards the oasis in the desert. The small gate in the hedge was closed, but the door of the house was open. Without hesitation, when her knock failed to produce any response, she walked in. The sight that met her gaze was as welcome as it was unexpected. On a small table, by a smaller fire, was a pot of tea. A saucerless cup was half filled with milkless fluid. A chair near the table was at an untidy angle, and on the floor was a large spade, its metal moist. But if the last items were less welcome than the first, in that quick initial glance, the tea towered above everything. But for these frugal signs of a meal, and the open front door. The house seemed unoccupied. It had a musty, closed-in smell, and dust was everywhere. Anybody at home? she called. Only her echo answered her. She walked to the table. The tea in the cup was still hot. The spade on the floor was still wet. She glanced towards a door at the back of the room. It was ajar. About to call again, she paused. Her ears, grown acute through tension, had caught a sound on the other side of the door. At first she could not decipher it. Then, as it was repeated, with a sort of jerky regularity, she guessed what it was. It resembled the breathing of a short-winded ghost. But she did not believe in ghosts. Are you coming in, or shall I come out? she asked, adopting bold tactics. In a moment or two the door moved, and a head peered in cautiously. It was not a prepossessing head, small, pale, with straw-coloured hair, a flat nose, and eyes that did not agree. It came round the door like a bad joke. For a few seconds, beauty and ugliness stared at each other. And then the head inquired in a husky voice, Who are you? My name won't interest you, answered Janet, but my condition may, if you've a heart. I'm cold and sopping, and I've lost my way. Oh, have you? blinked the head. Yes, I've got a heart, sir. But it ain't as strong and you gave me a proper scare. I'm sorry. May I know who you are? Me? Oh, a caretaker. Now he entered completely. From the look of his shabby suit, he did not earn a high salary for his job. I was just having a cup of tea. His eyes fixed themselves on the spade. After doing a bit of snow shoveling... Mike shot. See, I dropped the spade when I heard you coming. Did you think I was a ghost? He smiled queerly. He was a horrid little fellow. But Janet found herself feeling rather sorry for him. Uh, that's right, miss. Being alone in a empty house gives you the creeps. Especially at Christmas. That's right, ain't it? He looked at her earnestly. This house... He's haunted. I wouldn't recommend nobody to stay here. Oh, at the present moment I'm not in a mood to be particular, she pointed out. Oh, I see. Where are you trying to get to? 
West Manhattan. Never heard of it. He saw the astonishment in her eyes and added hastily. See, I only been caretaker here a couple of days. You better ask someone else. Thank you. Who? He scratched his head. Listen, she went on to her unsatisfactory host. I don't want to trouble you, but I'm really in a frightful mess. If I can sit by your fire and dry myself for ten minutes, and if you could let me have just one cup of tea from that pot, I'll give you a jolly good Christmas present. She produced from her sopping bag a dry ten-shilling note, and the caretaker's eyes gleamed. And if you could add a towel, she said with sudden inspiration, and could give me those ten minutes to myself, I might turn this note into a pound one. Oh, it's a go, exclaimed the caretaker, and dived back into the kitchen. In a few moments he reappeared with an empty cup and a roller towel. I found this hanging up. I hope it'll do, he said hoarsely. The cup's clean in here. Any chance of a drop of milk? she asked. He shook his head. Sugar? Sorry, miss. See, I, I ain't started ordering things proper yet, he explained. And the bloke what engaged me didn't leave no stores, only the tea. But there's plenty of that in the pot, so help yourself, miss. And you can have half an hour, if you like, while I goes on with me digging. He seized the spade and ran out of the room again. She heard his hurried footsteps fading away across a floor. She gazed after him with a little frown, trying to quell disturbing thoughts. Of course, it hasn't really been shopping weather lately, she reflected. But if you've been here for two days, Mr. Caretaker, have you been living entirely on tea leaves? And whose ghost did you expect to walk in on you? Well, these things were nothing to do with her. Her own concern was to make good use of this half-hour, and she proceeded to do so very thoroughly. Her first action was to lock the doors of the parlour to ensure privacy. Then she drew a blue check curtain across the window. The pale, subdued light gave her a comforting sense of peace, and the little fire, coming into its own, added to her pleasure. Secure against interruption, she took off her wet coat and slipped out of her dress, almost purring with pleasure as the warmth of the fire caressed her bare arms. This is the moment for that tea, she thought. She filled the empty cup, then sipped gingerly. Minus milk, the tea was still too hot to gulp. Somewhere outside she believed she heard the sound of shoveling, but she could not be sure. Where was he? at the back or front. Drawn by idle curiosity, she began to move towards the window, but retreated quickly as her shadow fell upon the blue check curtain. She heard soft steps outside. He was in the front. Well, I hope he's enjoying himself, she murmured. It isn't my idea of fun. In her retreat, she had nearly stumbled over her suitcase on the floor, and the incident gave her a new idea or elaborated a previous one. She opened the case, and, after removing a top layer of gifts destined for sundry folk at West Mallerton, if she ever reached them, she unpacked a complete change of lingerie. Then she stripped, life growing better and better as she shed each damp garment. Naked, she laughed. The outrageous absurdity of her position swept over her, and she wondered what the absent house-owner would have thought 
had he known of the use that was being made of his parlour. Would he have been amused or indignant, pleased or annoyed? Well, he would never know, so why worry? She laughed again, then suddenly stood rigid. A sound she could not, or would not, interpret had broken the velvet silence outside and frozen her laughter. She remained motionless, waiting for its repetition. When it was not repeated, and the only sound she could hear was the beating of her heart, she began diving into her clothes with desperate speed, striving to comfort herself as she dressed. Of course it wasn't, she thought. It was an owl hooting, or some animal or other. Or, yes, the whistle of a distant chain. That silly idiot talking about his precious ghost. He's given me the jim-jams. Redressed, she unlocked the back door with definite distaste, and called into the dim kitchen. Are you in there? As once before, her echo answered her. But this time it was a particularly unpleasant echo, repeating her question with ironic derision. Then she unlocked the front door and looked out into the gloaming. Dusk had come abruptly. It was a dusk choked with thick flakes. For a short space she could see nothing but the snow, falling as relentlessly as ever, and drowning the world beneath its dull, white monotone. But presently, as she stared, shapes and outlines grew, and she made out the laden trees, the muffled bushes, and the boundary hedge. What she did not see was the little, flat-nosed, pale-faced caretaker. Her mind fretted nervously, swinging inconsistently from one decision to another. I must find him, it ran, then recanted. Why should I find him? I can just go. I expect I'll come across somebody somewhere who'll direct me. And of course it was an owl. No, Janet, you don't think that. Stop playing tricks with yourself. You know you can't go yet. Why, you haven't even paid him. I could leave the note on the table, couldn't I? Yes, why not? You know very well why not. She had just decided to brave the elements, this time not on her own behalf, when a figure came round the angle of the wall. At first she thought it was the caretaker, and she breathed a sigh of relief. But then she realised that even the illusions of the snow could not have increased him to this size. And as the newcomer stopped abruptly and stared at her, she stared back in equal astonishment. It was the Scotland Yard detective. Get back, he ordered sharply. To ensure her obedience, he advanced and thrust her back unceremoniously into the room. Then he entered after her, glanced quickly around, and closed the door behind him. How did you get here? he demanded. Her nerves on edge, she was not in a mood for cross-examination and she retorted, How did you? You seem to be a very disobedient young lady, he frowned. I think I advised you not to follow me. Since I seem to have got here first, she returned, I suppose you're quite sure you haven't followed me? And what right have you to call me disobedient? I'm not under your orders. He apologised impatiently. Forgive me, but you'll recall I told you I was on a job, and perhaps if you're more polite I can help you with the job. I beg your pardon. You heard me. 
Let's start fresh. A few minutes ago, somebody gave a cry out there. Are you sure? he asked. Sufficiently? Didn't you hear it? We'll have your story first, if you don't mind. When did you hear the cry? Four or five minutes ago. I can't say exactly. But you didn't go out? She flushed slightly as she recalled the reason. But she did not give the reason. She answered simply, No. Are you alone in here? Don't you think, she suggested, it would be quicker if I told you my story in my own words, unless it would be an even better idea to go out first and look for the trouble. There was a caretaker here when I arrived. He went out while I was trying to get dry. He hasn't come back. The detective hesitated, then nodded. You're right. Will you wait here? If you don't want me to come with you. It wouldn't help. There's no need to put you into unnecessary danger. Where did the cry seem to come from? Which direction? The back. Thank you. Stay in this parlour. Don't move out of it. He added, with a faint smile, You don't mind being obedient this time. I don't mind being sensible, she replied. I don't call that obedience. He turned to the door, but paused with his hand on the knob. For a couple of hours you and I sat side by side without saying a word, he remarked. Since then we've got to know each other quite well. Then he left her. She returned to the fire and finished her tea, but the comfort had gone out of it, and she found herself starting shadows and eyeing the doors apprehensively. It would have helped if the detective had a more appealing personality. She wanted the fiction brand. Apparently there was nothing appealing in the real thing. Romance, sentiment, even common politeness were lacking. She almost preferred the quaint little horror who had gone out into the snow with his spade and not come back again. The minutes dragged by. A grandfather clock on the wall should have ticked them away, but it had stopped, like everything else but the snow. She had stopped herself. She ought to be travelling to West Mallerton, or moving about the gay and bustling house there, unpacking, chatting, laughing, or drinking tea with milk and sugar in it, out of a delicate, expensive cup. Instead, she glanced round the musty, dusty parlour, now transferred from a sanctuary to a sort of prison. I've had enough of this, she exclaimed, jumping up suddenly. I'm going to have a look for myself. The front door opened, and the detective returned. Still here, he observed superfluously. Just, she answered. Did you find anything? He shook his head. Then what's your solution? she asked. Quite a simple one, I imagine, he said. But let me have the rest of your story. She gave it to him briefly. He listened without interruption. When she had finished, she recalled one point she had forgotten to mention. Oh, there's just one more thing, she added, if it's important. You remember you left me rather hurriedly after I'd caught you up from the motor coach. I recall it, he admitted. After you left me, I found two sets of footprints, and practically sure that before then there had only been one set. Your own. What about yours? Excluding mine, of course. He stared at the fire for a few moments then said, Yes, you're right. And the whole thing fits. So, here is my side of the story. I told you I was on a job. 
Your so-called caretaker was the job. I came to this neighbourhood to track him. He broke prison a few days ago and had been reported in this locality. Just as you and I were talking in that lane, I spotted the fellow dashing by. In effect, I've been chasing him ever since. You mean he came here? she exclaimed. Obviously. Thinking himself safe, he lit a fire and made himself some tea. Then you came in, gave him the shock of his life. Probably he thought you were me. He posed as a caretaker, played his cards carefully, and as soon as he got a chance, hopped it. Naturally, he extended those ten minutes to half an hour. It gave him longer for his getaway. I see, replied Janet slowly. Yes, of course. Only... What? That cry. He probably tripped and banged his nose. You don't bang your nose in soft snow. I've tried it myself. You may bang it against something else, or imagine you're going to. And if he was making his getaway, why didn't he do it at once? I've told you. He had to pose as the caretaker first and make quite sure you weren't suspicious. He didn't want you following him. You haven't got me, she corrected him. What I meant was, why didn't he make his getaway as soon as he left me the last time? How do you know he didn't? Because that cry didn't come till quite a while afterwards. I'd begun to get dry, had some tea, gone to the front door to listen to those steps outside, returned, unpacked some things from my case. I'm sure it was quite seven or eight minutes. I see your point, answered the detective. It's a good one. Then how do you get over it? He may have been delayed through some cause unknown to us, or the cry may not have come from him at all. Who from, then? An owl. I thought of that. Well, think of it again. Yes, but now I'm thinking of something else, she said. For a modern young lady, smiled the detective, you seem to do an unusual amount of thinking. What is your thought this time? His spade. What about the spade? If he'd just dived in here to get away from you, if he wasn't a caretaker, why was he digging the snow away? Perhaps he was trying to make a funk hole. Did you find the spade? Not a sign of it. And the next? She stared at the tip of her toe before putting her last question. Can you tell me the way to West Mallerton? He laughed. This time our thoughts match, he said for I was just about to suggest myself that you continued your journey. I'm afraid I have a little disappointment for you, though. What is it? The direction of West Mallerton. A detective on the job doesn't care to give his own direction away in public. So, when you made your inquiry in the coach, I implied I was going towards West Mallerton when actually I was going precisely the opposite way. You'll remember I tried to dissuade you from following me. But you were somewhat pig-headed. Return to the high road and take the lane on the other side. Thank you for not very much, she answered. What will you do? Light a pipe, take five minutes off by this fire, and then catch my man. Good afternoon. He opened the front door and gave a stiff little bow. She took up her suitcase. It paused in the doorway.
He looked to misery, she said. What had he done? Eighteen months for housebreaking, replied the detective, and he has another eighteen to come. Then she passed out into the snow and heard the front door close behind her. She walked towards the gate, slowly and dissatisfied. Before she reached it, something caught her eye. It was a long object on the ground on her right. The falling flakes had almost covered it. Quickly she glanced back at the cottage. The blue curtain glowed faintly in the firelight behind it. It was in position, and if the detective had drawn it aside to watch her go, he had replaced it. Darting to the object, she bent and examined it. It was a spade. The detective had said that, for a modern girl, Janet did an unusual amount of thinking. In the next few seconds she justified the assertion, and she acted while she thought. She was back at the gate in a flash. In another she had opened and closed it with a loud click, though whether the click was heard inside the parlour she had no means of knowing. In another she had slipped behind the cold, snow-laden foliage of a big clump of bushes. A second assertion of the detective's proved less accurate. He had promised himself five minutes' respite in the parlour, came out in less than two. From her white bower, she watched him emerge, watched the smudge of his form, a grim blot in the gloaming, pause in a listening attitude, move swiftly to the gate, peer over, and then slip in front of the bushes towards the spade. He had said he had not found the spade, but he knew where it was. A third assertion tested, and, like the second, disproved. Risking whatever might be coming to her, Janet crept from her concealment, and was just in time to see the detective pick up the spade and make for the back of the cottage. She left her suitcase under the bushes and followed him. He walked slowly and cautiously, and once he stopped dead and looked round, if she had not anticipated the movement and dodged behind a large water-butt, he would have seen her, with what results she could not guess. Proceeding, the stalker and the stalked reached a backyard, and what seemed, as far as Janet could make, but from the irregular white surface, an untidy kitchen garden or neglected half-worked field beyond. Here the man suddenly stopped. He stared at the ground. From where she stood, she could not see what he was staring at. But it appeared to be a small mound of snow. She waited breathlessly. Would he never move again? Presently he stopped staring and began shoveling. He was shoveling snow onto the mound with the spade. After working for three minutes or thereabouts, he ceased the shoveling and again stared at the mound. Then he moved on again. But Janet did not move. She dreaded to. Through the blinding snow she could just discern the shape of the mound. It terrified her. Yet mixed with the terror was a queer, compelling anger. It was not until she feared his slowly moving form would fade out beyond the mound that she advanced. As she neared the spot, the man stopped once more, and began digging in the snow ten yards away. Reaching the mound, she bent over it, 
and failed to stifle her exclamation at what she saw. The man turned swiftly. The next moment he was confronting her. What the hell are you doing here? His expression was livid. What are you doing here? She answered, astonished at the steadiness of her voice. And how do you explain that? She did not have to point to the snow-covered shape on the ground. His gaze followed hers. I didn't tell you. I didn't want to frighten you, he rasped. He was digging and he fell on his spade, cracking his skull. Why are you digging? To find out why he was. What silly ideas have you got into your head? She faced his challenging eyes. Shall I tell you? Do you dare? He seized her wrist and held it cruelly. I suppose you're trying to impress me with your strength, she said, with scorn in her voice. But isn't that a bit superfluous? You've got a heavy spade, and evidently know how to use it. She regretted her remark immediately afterwards, for in a sudden mad frenzy, he raised the spade, and she knew it was not the first time he had raised it so that afternoon. But the next moment the implement dropped harmlessly to the ground, and the man himself dropped too, with a shout of pain. Put your hands up, Benson, said a quiet voice behind them, or the next one won't be in your foot. Janet turned weakly. It was the loquacious young man from the coach. The man on the ground glared helplessly, then obeyed the order as the newcomer advanced. A pair of handcuffs clicked. After that the young man stooped to the mound, brushed aside some of the snow, and stared for a long while at what lay beneath. I see you got Smith, he murmured. Damned double-crosser, muttered Benson. You talked too much, eh? Before he was let out. Smart, aren't you? And so you broke prison to try and race him to the spot. And you were the also-ran, sneered Benson. Who nevertheless appears to have won the race? The young man pointed out. Well, Benson, let's have it. Which of you dug up the necklace you buried before you were caught for the West Mountain robbery? You or Smith? Benson moistened his dry lips. I didn't talk then, he growled, and I'm not talking now. No? Well, I don't expect it matters. The reason I didn't settle you in the coach was because I wanted you first to lead me all the way, and the only mistake I made, he added, turning to Janet for a moment, was to show myself too soon in that lane when you were talking to him. You'll remember I tried to dissuade you from following him, didn't I? You did, she answered. I suppose it was you who caused him to vanish so suddenly, and who made that second set of footprints. Yes, when I vanished after him, smiled the young man. But he was too quick for me that time. I lost him for half an hour. Addressing Benson again, now without the smile, he went on. Come along. I gather you've been busy a little way off. Let's see what you've been up to got down to. Picking up the spade, he forced the unwilling Benson to the spot where he had been digging. Janet followed them slowly, reaching them just as the young man gave an exclamation. He stooped and picked a long string of pearls from the snow-cleared earth. "'May I have it, please?' she asked. The young man turned and stared at her. 
Even the handcuffed thief forgot for a moment the injured foot he was nursing. I'm spending Christmas at the house where that robbery occurred, she explained, and I'd rather like to give my hostess her necklace as a present. But the young man, after looking at her oddly, shook his head and became unprofessionally human. For two hours, he said, I have had the tantalising experience of sitting behind the back of your head. If you don't mind, I think I'll give your hostess her necklace myself tomorrow morning, using it as the means to a frontal introduction. The unprofessional moment passed. He added gravely, Meanwhile, since the snow is stopping, perhaps you'd better continue with your pleasure, while I continue with my business. As Janet resumed her way, this time in the right direction. By all the laws of logic, she should have been thinking of an extremely interesting young man, with whom, on the morrow, she was to renew her acquaintance. Instead, she found herself dwelling on a mound of snow, and a miserable, pathetic little fellow with a squint, for whom no morrow would dawn. So that was Secrets in the Snow, written by J. Jefferson Fargion, I think that's how you pronounce it, and narrated by Jasper Lestrange of the Encrypted Horror podcast, which you can find on YouTube. And if you look in the show notes, you'll see um, links to both the podcast as a podcast on Spotify and as a video podcast on YouTube. So I'm really, really, I loved that, actually. I'm really, really excited to be able to uh, move forward with this new classic detective stories um, podcast and have guest narrators. So Jasper won't be the last, and he may appear again if he's willing to do that. Um, but um, how, what, what a great talent. I've just absolutely adored it. And in a funny way, you know, I don't listen to many um, fiction podcasts. I listen to audio dramas and I listen to factual podcasts. And I don't know why that is, but um, because my love of being told stories was one of the reasons I got into doing my own podcasting. But um, there we are. So do go and check out Jasper's um, um, wonderful encrypted horror. So we, when we discussed this, uh, Jasper and I, it was, it, it, uh, he, he wanted to do this for his own encrypted horror, or he had an idea to do the story for his own encrypted horror podcast. But it is, it is a detective story, isn't it? You know, the, the man from Scotland Yard and, and the young woman wandering into the cottage in the forest, you know, secrets in the snow. And it is right for, it's December now, December 23, so it's right for this time of year as well. But it actually seemed fortuitously, ser uh, ser serendipitously, if that is a word, or if it is a word, if I butchered it, um, it was a detective story set in the snow. It was absolutely perfect. Um, for the Classic Detective Stories podcast. I'm just going to say something I've already said about Jasper and how great he is, and please go and listen to him on his own podcast um, on YouTube or on Spotify. And I want to say something about your man, J. Jefferson Fargion, born 1883, died 1955. This story, as Jasper tells me, is one of many mystery stories written by Mr. Fargion, who, and it was uh, published in 1942, 
in Best Stories of the Underworld. So Joseph Jefferson Fargen was born in, um, in Hampstead in London, in, and he was in 1883, and he was the grandson of American actor Joseph Jefferson, after whom he was named. His parents were Jefferson's daughter Maggie uh, and Benjamin Fargen, a Victorian novelist who was born in Whitechapel. This is the father to an impoverished immigrant family and travelled widely before returning to England in 1868. Um, Joseph Jefferson, our J. Jefferson Fargen, were Herbert, a dramatist and scholar, and Harry, who became a composer. His sister Eleanor became a children's author. His daughter, Joan Jefferson Fargen, 1913 to 2006, was a theatre set designer. So there we are. So he's got a very creative lineage there. Um, he worked for 10 years for Amalgamated Press in London before going freelance, working nine hours a day at his writing desk. One of Fargen's best-known works was a 1925 play, Number 17, which was adapted into several films, including Number 17, directed by Alfred Hitchcock, went out in 1932. And he joined the uh, UK Penguin crime series, um, it was, it was published in the UK Penguin Crime Series as a novel in 1939. He also wrote the screenplay for Michael Powell's My Friend the King and uh, provided the story for Pernod Vorhaus's The Ghost Camera, 1933. I don't know that one. Sounds right on my street. Fargen's crime novels were admired by Dorothy L. Sayers, who called him unsurpassed for creepy skill in mysterious adventures. His obituarist in The Times talked of ingenious and entertaining plots and characterization while the New York Times reviewing an early novel, Master Criminal, 1924, states that Mr. Fargen displays a great deal of knowledge about storytelling and multiplies the interest of his plot through a terse telling style and rigid compression. Good stuff. The Saturday Review of Literature called Death in the Inkwell, another of his stories, 1942, an amusing, satirical and frequently hair-raising yarn. Um, I think that um, I, I found that quite funny in different places. And I don't know whether that was just a, um, Jasper's skill, but uh, some of it was like, I mean, you know, I, I thought the young woman, Janet, goes into the cottage and, and she strips to her lingerie and you're like, what? You know, there we are. But uh, it's a funny old world. A significant revival of interest in the golden age of detective fiction followed the 2014 success of the British, British Library reissue of Mystery in White, A Christmas Crime Story. And then they reissued, reissued two more of his novels, 13 Guests and The Z Murders. Mystery in White is also um, one of at least three of his novels to have appeared in Italian, French, Dutch. Here you go, in Dutch. Et Mystery in the Snow. There you go, the mystery in the snow. German, we don't get the... And Russian, Polish. So there we are. So um, actually, it's really interesting because um, you may notice that the British Library reissued a load of these classic um, British detective stories uh, and they're doing the same for ghost stories all these um, old stories that are in their in their archives very creative very good and need to be commended for that so that's really good so wasn't that splendid so remember um if you're interested in doing a guest narration for a modest fee um then please get in touch with me at classic ghost podcast all one word at gmail.com uh, and I'd love to hear a sample of your voice okay thank you <laughs>